Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about torment as tactic. gist of this conversation today is going to be that we've taken the concept of harassing people and threatening them with violence, even rape and murder, too much for granted today as simply one of the things that happen out there in you know social media or in political discourse, and it's unacceptable, and we should do something about it. But to frame it up, I probably want to start with an older story with far less at stake, just to give a sense of kind of me having personal experience with some forms, uh, you know, pretty benign forms, I would say, but nevertheless, some forms of harassment. When I was in junior high school, which in the United States is uh, back when I was growing up, it was grades 7th, 8th, and 9th together. Today in the U.S., you typically see more of a middle school model where 6th, 7th, and 8th grades are together, and you have four years in high school, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th. But when I was growing up, elementary school was K through 6, junior high school was 7, 8, and 9, and then the high school itself was just 10 through 12 in terms of the grade levels. And probably the worst year that anybody experiences, I've found this to be true, just talking with lots of people who've had you know sort of a similar story to tell, that that 7th grade year is really pretty bad. You've got a middle school age set of people, not yet fully teenagers or barely in some cases, depending on the age, turning teenagers, and capable of treating people in really an abysmal manner. And then you also often have this factor of merging children from different elementary schools together, that the elementary school setting tends to be a little bit smaller, a little bit more neighborhood-based when I was growing up. And then when you get to that junior high school level, and you might have two, three, four different elementary schools joining together, meaning you're recreating cliques and friend groups as you go, and that creates a whole host of drama, even in the best of circumstances, and when things don't go well, you get a tremendous amount of bullying. And the only thing that I can think of that I enjoyed less than enduring that seventh grade year was my parents moving from one house to another between the year I was in seventh grade and then the summer following that going into eighth grade, starting all over again, smack dab in the middle of a new junior high school. Because the way the packing order tended to work is seventh graders, lowest of the rung, likely to get picked on by upperclassmen, sometimes struggling to create a new social fabric even within the grade, so having trouble within, within other seventh graders, if you're ninth graders, you're top of the heap. In some cases, you're already playing varsity football and sort of joining joining the uh, the athletic events of the high school. You've got one foot out the door, so to speak. And eighth grade has got that middle school problem, that, that middle kid problem, if you will, where you're not top of the heap, but you're also not, uh, you're not under the watchful eye, maybe, of the administration like you would be if you were a arguably vulnerable seventh grader with an administration that cared about doing anything about bullying. So you kind of get ignored when you're in that 8th grade group. And when you move from one junior high school as a 7th grader to another new junior high school as an 8th grader, you're a stranger all over again, and you're experiencing sort of all those problems 
all over again. And for me, it was moving into a brand new neighborhood where I didn't know any of my neighbors, leaving a neighborhood where I kind of knew a lot of people on every block of the neighborhood I grew up in. I had a classmate, at the very least, or friends of my parents, people who went to our church, people that I knew. And now, moving into a new situation, I could still ride my bike through the neighborhood. I could still, you know, explore to one extent or another, but I wasn't exploring with people I knew. I was essentially isolated, and it kind of felt that way. The other thing that was interesting was, you get to the end of that seventh grade year, and you do sort of find your way. I've got friends that I'm connected with today online that I knew all the way back in that seventh grade year. Sean is somebody that I've mentioned in past Inappropriate Conversations episodes, at least uh, just as recently as this past summer. And she and I encountered each other in seventh grade, disliked each other strongly at first, and developed a friendship by the time that year was over that has lasted all the way to this day. So it's not that things don't work out. And one of Sean's friends was a a young woman, I'm going to remember her name as Karen, may or may not be true, but sort of the last event I remember at the end of the seventh grade year, some sort of seventh grade party where the entire grade was going together, I think unchaperoned. I think it was a sort of not a school event, but the school year had ended and that Friday night after the uh, the last day of school, whatever day of the week the last day of school was, we all went to a relatively nearby amusement park together. Now in this large Midwestern city, uh, we had an amusement park that was more than just the kind of traveling carnival ride experience. My kids have grown up in a different uh, Midwestern, Mideastern city, where from time to time you'd have the ability to send your kids off, buy them some tickets, they could ride some rides. But this was a permanent amusement park that sort of maybe wasn't open in the dead of winter, but it was there year-round with a large wooden roller coaster and other attractions that I'm pretty sure people who lived in the city I grew up in would know by name. I'll drop a few of those names just for sport, as a matter of fact, because if you were going on maybe your first real date with a girl from your grade, again, I'll call her Karen, there are probably three rides that this amusement park had that would have been of interest to somebody who was kind of on a date with a girl for the first time. One of them was Zingo, this large wooden roller coaster, and that really wasn't my cup of tea. Uh, It's just the nature of a wooden roller coaster to be uh, not a smooth ride, to be very jittery. This one was very up and down. The one that most of the older kids in my junior high school, and even people I knew from church who were in high school, liked a lot for a date ride at the park was called the Himalaya. And it was a circular ride with a lot of up and down, and the centrifugal force would pull the two of you together. If you were sitting on the bench in this one particular ride, you'd end up inherently cuddling because the ride would force you into that sort of maneuver. And that was all fine and good. The one that I liked the best was called Phantasmagoria. And it didn't really have... It was a very smooth ride, metal rails, and it had a few drops in it, but it really wasn't that sort of up and down thing. It wasn't a ride that was going to jostle you around. And it was, as you might guess by the name Phantasmagoria, it was set up with a theme of being a spook house kind of a ride. But really, even on the first time through, I don't know if I would go so far as to call it genuinely spooky. It wasn't it wasn't a scary ride per se, despite its pretense of being of having, you know, a Dracula and Frankenstein in it and all that other sort of stuff. I frankly always liked the name Phantasmagoria from that point on from that ride. Uh, Not that many years later, I would pick up my first album by the band Curved Air, and it has a song on it called Phantasmagoria that I really enjoyed. I think I've shared it on a past 
uh, Halloween-themed Inappropriate Conversations episode as well, because it kind of looks at the ghost story from the perspective of what if the ghost is just frightened and lonely, that sort of kind of thing. And that sort of tongue-in-cheek approach was kind of what this ride was like. And I definitely remember writing both Himalaya and Phantasmagoria with Karen on a date that was little more than um, a willful collegiality, that we were acknowledging that we were together, but short of maybe a little bit of holding hands and perhaps arm around the girl on the Himalaya ride, that was about it. It wasn't a kiss goodnight kind of a date, but it was my first practical experience even along those lines. And so to finally make that kind of connection at the junior high school, I knew I'd be leaving forever. And then going to the next junior high school and spending a summer where you were too far away from your old friends, but didn't really know anybody in the new neighborhood was, it was kind of disjointing. It was a little bit, it made you feel a little bit uneasy, I guess. And I spent a huge chunk of that eighth grade year kind of repeating the social kind of approach to the seventh grade year, not knowing anybody, trying to figure out who knew who, uh, being in a situation where everyone else seemed to have a connection that I didn't for for obvious reasons. And it taking me really all the way until that end of that year and that sort of uh, class trip, in this case, a bus trip from you know where we live four hours away to a different city where there was a Six Flags amusement park. And it kind of took that local inner city amusement park concept up to the next level. I mean, this was State Fair of Texas, kind of the, the site, the setting, the scope, if you will. And so uh, that particular time, same deal. I finally, by the time the year ended, had made a connection. But this also was uh, just an acknowledgement that we are going to be together on this trip and that we like each other enough for that to be a sustainable concept. And holding hands, riding together on the bus, talking as much as you can when you're socially awkward and you still really haven't made that many connections at this grade level. And I'm going to call this girl Stacy. And this also didn't end with a goodnight kiss, didn't end with you know commitments during that next summer to... Uh, see each other, go out on dates, what have you. And, you know, one of the problems that I had when moving from the old neighborhood to this neighborhood was that we were moving into a school district where I don't know that I would describe it as a wealthy school district. That's probably not an accurate statement. But a lot of people were a little bit better off than I believed I was, that our family was fine. We were financially sound. We were happy. We didn't have issues. We were squarely middle class. But I didn't have a lot of disposable income. And being the youngest member of my graduating class, being somebody who didn't have a driver's license until partway through my junior year in high school, I didn't have a lot of freedom and didn't perceive a lot of freedom to take a girl out on a date. Anything I did was going to be chaperoned inherently by the nature of the fact that I didn't have my own transportation and couldn't have driven myself if I did. But I also didn't feel like I had that much discretionary income available to me that paying for me and a girl to both go to a movie and maybe grab fast food or ice cream along the way was not, not a guaranteed thing. Not something I could, I could ask a girl out after building up the courage to do that and then be 100% certain that I had the financial backing and the transportation to make it work. So despite that one, you know, eight hour round trip bus trip, plus the time of the amusement park, never asked Stacey out again. And I've got reason to believe that she might have taken that very personally, 
that whether it was a combination of, of my simply lack of confidence to ask her out again, whether I didn't feel at home to invite her over to my place that summer or ask if I could come over to her house during the summer, that with parents who were both working, you were home alone in some cases. Now, this is you know, obviously you're you know, 13 years old, 14 years old, probably in her case. Wouldn't have been quite so controversial as the plot to the, the movie Home Alone. But at the same time, my parents would have been very uncomfortable with a girl being over in my house when they weren't around. So that was kind of a non-starter. But the problem was, I'm pretty sure that Stacy took it personally. That the fact that this did not lead to more encounters, to formal dates, to some sort of budding relationship. It seemed to me anyway, at least in retrospect, that she took that as an insult. That this was, to her, a perceived rejection. And I'm not sure that I would say that that was true from my perspective. My perspective was that I had hurdles I couldn't get across, and those stopped me in my tracks. None of them had anything to do with Stacy or her personality or her appearance or anything of that nature. But in this new house that we'd only moved into a year before, we began to get, well, what you might call the high school equivalent of harassment. Now, I don't want to make any accusations. I don't believe we ever did anything along the lines of tapping our own phones to determine who was making prank phone calls or setting up any sort of camera system to identify who was toilet papering trees and all that other sort of stuff. But I do know that we began to get enough um, phone-based harassment, for want of a better word, that it rendered one of the phone lines in our house completely useless. And I kind of felt bad about it. I felt as if I had let my brother and my sisters down because this house had one really cool factor to it. In addition to moving from what had been a relatively small ranch home to a house that was two stories with children's bedrooms up top, the parents' master suite down below, I saw something when we moved into this house that I'd never seen before. And it's something that I'm glad my parents just went ahead and retained. I think it was a feature that was already there. But the house had two phone lines. I guess... If you grew up in the era where the internet was accessible via a telephone modem, I probably know a lot of people who have at some point in their life lived in a house that had two phone lines. But in the late 1970s, that just wasn't the case. This was really unusual. And the phone at the top of the stairs, you know, in the hallway outside the children's bedrooms, that phone had a sort of a circular switch to it where it could answer either the phone, either the phone numbers for the house we used to call them the downstairs phone and the upstairs phone, but that upstairs phone was capable of answering both lines. You could simply turn this button and you would be answering the same ring that would have been ringing downstairs in the kitchen. And this is old school landline stuff where you've got one of those really long stretchy cords where you could answer the phone in the kitchen and drag it all the way into the TV room and be talking on the phone while you're watching television. It was one of those situations. And the phone that we had at the top of the stairs was one, like a princess telephone kind of a setup, but it had a long cord where you could drag it into any of the available bedrooms, for the most part, even into the bathroom, I suppose, although I don't think that was a common thing. But because that phone was the only one that rang the children's line, that was the phone number that we all gave out. It was the phone number that appeared in the high school and junior high school directories. And it began to get phone calls at midnight, one, two, three in the morning even at times, where somebody would simply call and either breathe or call and when you answered, hang up. And it was essentially being used to create uncertainty, perhaps fear, but really more just harassment. 
And the only way around it, ultimately, that we figured out was simply that one of my tasks going to bed during the period of time that this was happening was to turn that knob to where it was set to the upstairs phone line and leave the phone off the hook. And you have to wait like 30, 45 seconds for the whole busy signal thing to get done and the the phone gets a little bit louder and makes a bunch of noise. But eventually, the phone off the hook just simply stops making noise and it's a busy signal all night long. And the person who was engaging this campaign of harassment, whatever her name or his name might be, basically accomplished little more than making one of the two phone lines going into this house completely inoperable for the latter part of the summer at a big chunk of the beginning of the next school year going into ninth grade. And that was about it. But I have had the experience of being unable to use my own phone because of getting a series of, again, nuisance phone calls. Now, unfortunately, that is nothing compared to what I'm trying to describe today. It's simply a way of personalizing this a little bit and say I, I do sort of, I do sort of on some level, and this in this case is a young preteen, have an understanding of what it means to hear a phone ring, and think to yourself, well, that sucks, or that's not going to be good, or I wonder if there's going to be some threat on the other end of the line this time instead of just silence or breathing or whatnot. Unfortunately, what we're dealing with in America today is far more sinister than that. And torment is easily the right word for it. Dan Carlin, Common Sense. I'm sorry, folks. I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now. When could they have one? I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. Fiercely independent. It's common sense. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for? Slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. Dan Carlin. Common sense. There is a writer who until recently worked for the National Review. A political conservative writing from the perspective of an evangelical Christian, the kind of person who might introduce himself first and foremost as being anti-abortion, that kind of columnist for a conservative magazine like the National Review, who I think is probably written best on this issue. And there's something a little bit ironic about that. I guess I'll ask a question right up front before I get into letting him tell some of his story with his own words, going back to October of 2016. Can you tell the difference between who is a monster and who is not based solely on whether or not the monster is willing to devour its own? It's a fair question. Here's what David French wrote under the headline, The Price I've Paid for Opposing Donald Trump, October 21st, 2016, at nationalreview.com. Trump's alt-right trolls have subjected me and my family to an unending torrent of abuse that I wouldn't wish on anyone. We'll come back to that concept in just a bit. Back to French. I distinctly remember the first time I saw a picture of my then seven-year-old daughter's face in a gas chamber. It was the evening of September 17, 2015. I had just posted a short item to the Corning calling out the notorious Trump ally Ann Coulter for aping the white nationalist language and rhetoric of the so-called alt-right. Within minutes, the tweets came flooding in. My youngest daughter is African-American, adopted from Ethiopia, 
and in alt-right circles, that's an unforgivable sin. I saw images of my daughter's face in gas chambers, with a smiling Trump in a Nazi uniform preparing to press the button and kill her. I saw her face photoshopped into images of slaves, and so on. The alt-right unleashed on my wife, Nancy, claiming that she had slept with black men while I was deployed in Iraq, and that I loved to watch while she had sex with the black bucks. People sent her pornographic images of black men having sex with white women, with someone photoshopped to look like me, watching. This is just the tip of the iceberg for what uh, he experienced. It would lead to uh, threats of violence. It would even lead to fears that people might show up at his door. In fact, uh, I'll share quickly his story about kind of what he felt like when he was confronted by his neighbors and their concerns about what it might mean to have someone, quite literally, show up at his door. He says one Sunday, friends from church approached, expressing concern not just for the safety of French and his family, but also for their own safety as well. French says this, We live in a community where most of the streets have similar names, and it's common for UPS drivers, FedEx deliveries, and friends to end up at the wrong house. They interpreted the images as threats, and they didn't want anyone to drive to our neighborhood looking for the French's intent on turning the image into reality. They were, in other words, afraid that somebody who was threatening violence against the French's might show up at their own door instead, mistaking the neighbors for the French's and carrying out some sort of threat. The threat did include direct violence. Of course, French says, no story would be complete without a truly ominous threat. The moment we landed back home after I declined to run for president, my wife turned on her phone to see an email from a Trump fan, a veteran who informed her that he knew the business end of a gun and he told her directly that she should shut her mouth or he'd take action. We contacted law enforcement. She got a handgun permit and life returned to the new normal of daily Twitter harassment until the day this month when an angry voice broke into a phone conversation between my wife and her elderly father, screaming about Trump and spewing profanities. My wife was on her iPhone. Her father was on the landline. That launched a brief anxious search inside my father-in-law's home for a potential intruder, and yet another call to law enforcement. Online hate has become so common that it's almost a point of perverse pride among some pundits. If you don't get hateful messages, you must not matter. If you let the hate bother you, you must be weak. Indeed, in a world where feeding the trolls only makes them stronger, admitting that they've hurt you at all represents a victory for the worst of the worst. They relish your pain, and you don't want them to relish anything. But I'll be honest, it's miserable. There is nothing at all rewarding or enjoyable or satisfying about seeing your beautiful young daughter call the N-word, among other things. There's nothing rewarding, enjoyable, or satisfying about seeing man after man brag in bra graphic terms that he has slept with your wife. It's unsettling to have a phone call interrupted, watch the images of murder flicker across your screen, and read threatening emails. It's sobering to take your teenage kids out to the farm to make sure they're both proficient with handguns in case an intruder comes to the home when they're alone. So, where does this really take us? French, near the end of his article, says, The misery is compounded when longtime friends and allies dismiss my experiences and the experiences of my colleagues as nothing more than the normal cost of public advocacy. It's not. 
I have contributed to the National Review for more than 10 years now, and have been deeply involved in many of America's most emotional culture war battles for more than 20. I've never experienced anything like this before. There's French's story. I mentioned earlier that I would get back to the, uh, the headline lead of this particular article, where he says, Trump's alt-right trolls have subjected me and my family to an undending torrent of abuse that I wouldn't wish on anyone. Interesting. I want to make a reference back to September of 2018. There was a couple of things on my mind this particular time. One of them was the immediate aftermath of the uh, New Orleans Pride 48 event that year. I had recorded a podcast episode live in August that I believe was released probably in early September, looking, among other things, as Mr. Rogers and uh, Francois Clemens as different drummers. But I took advantage of the next two Inappropriate Conversations recordings, at least the introductory segment in those recordings, to discuss things related to the confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh. See, David French, despite his opposition to not just Donald Trump as a candidate and as a president, but to the nastier parts of his followers and supporters, was still very much on board with what I might describe as culture war politics. He was an advocate for Brett Kavanaugh to be confirmed to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. This despite some of the obvious questions in his paper trail, the clear cover-up of that paper trail, and just the bold fact that there were tons of other uh, arguably more conservative judges than this one, making it questionable that this one was the one that needed to be nominated and confirmed, despite initial questions, and then later questions that were being raised by Christine Blase Ford. I'm going to repeat myself just a little bit, probably from not just Inappropriate Conversations 213 and 214 in general, but 214 more specifically, but the point that I was trying to deal with at the time that those shows were released was that my biggest concern was not any sort of concept about he said, she said. It was not whether you believe that you know Dr. Ford was telling the truth. I do think there's a bit of a litmus test there that anybody who does not believe that she believes she's telling the truth should not be taken seriously, that their opinion reflects a genuine lack of discernment, that there may be something wrong with their character. Clearly, this woman had passed lie detector tests and testified with enough credibility that she believes what it was that she was saying, that she's recounting experiences to her memory. But to me, the number one issue had really relatively little to do with whether she was accurately recounting events that happened. I was more worried about the harassment she was on the business end of, that her family, not unlike the French's, had to deal with issues related to their feeling of safety and security within their home. You know, this was not isolated either to um, a conservative columnist for the National Review and a woman who came forward to testify against the Supreme Court nominee that it's clear that Dr. Ford's treatment was of a kind, but maybe much more toxic, much more dangerous than what Anita Hill had experienced decades earlier. That you could almost use those events with their similarities as how far we've slid into sort of a toxic culture as a result. No, to me, the litmus test that came forth from Dr. Ford's testimony and her experience surrounding her testimony wasn't just whether she was telling the truth or whether he was remembering things more accurately. The real litmus test was how did he respond, in the case of Brett Kavanaugh, to the harassment she was receiving? 
And to that question, a question I don't have an answer to, is how did David French respond to that same harassment? It is one thing to say in the headline lead of an online article that that these trolls had subjected the French family to an unending torrent of abuse that I wouldn't wish on anyone, to quote French. Well, maybe he didn't wish it on Dr. Ford, but I see almost no evidence that he did anything himself to speak up and stem the tide. He didn't make the comparison. He didn't say boldly and loudly that what was done wrong to him is being done wrong to someone else, and that is unacceptable. Now, maybe I'm not being fair here. Maybe I'm picking on a victim. Maybe I'm expecting someone who was traumatized and holding him to a standard of overcoming that trauma and speaking out for other traumatized people. And maybe that's a bridge too far for some folks, and maybe that's not fair. But the one person who I believe could have stopped the harassment of Dr. Ford and her family in its tracks was Brett Kavanaugh. In many ways, I saw the events that were happening that September in 2018 as a litmus test for his fitness to serve as a judge anywhere, for his fitness to serve in public office of any sort anywhere. He actually was being put in a position of unique power. He could have established his independence from the president in a time when he was looking like he was basically some sort of lackey or errand boy. And he could have, by simply putting his own nomination as stakes, shut down the trolling. He wouldn't have even had to make good on the promise, in my opinion. He could have said it because it was the right thing to say, and then not followed through because he quote-unquote did the best he could. But the problem is, he didn't do the best he could. He didn't try at all. If I criticize French for not speaking up enough in defense of Ford in the face of this kind of harassment, French did more than Kavanaugh, which was absolutely nothing. I have a potentially unfair theory as to why. Why would somebody who had been there before recognize the signs not speak up? Why would the one person with all the power to shut it down, to say, hey, online trolls and hypocrites, you think you're doing this because you want me to be the next Supreme Court justice? I will withdraw my nomination unless you stop this bullshit now. He didn't do it. Well, maybe he didn't do it. Because this wasn't just random harassment by a disparate set of people who have no connection whatsoever to the issues of the day or to the powers that be. Maybe this is in some ways, maybe even in a really subtle way, but in some ways, an orchestrated effort. Maybe there was a plan. Maybe there was a strategy. Maybe it was all a tactic. Which is why I'm referring to this as the concept of torment being used as a tactic. Can we shut this woman up? Because the bottom line is, this tactic was used successfully in December of 2016 to shut a woman up. At the time that the you know, presidential election of 2016 was reaching toward fever pitch, there was a fact going on that I was clearly aware of, and I'd been aware of probably since the summertime. I'd spoken about, at least on my personal Facebook page, going all the way back to the summertime, that wasn't being widely publicized because the media has a real difficulty with anonymous sources making dark and harsh accusations. But a woman who years ago had been the victim of sexual assault at the hands of Jeffrey Epstein put Trump in the room where it happened and was suing Donald Trump in a civil suit for his accountability for that situation. The president of the United States, or the president-elect, I guess, at the time, was being accused of being part of a rape. Part of a rape including... 
Jeffrey Epstein as a as sort of the the kingpin of that particular crime. And I think we all have a pretty good idea of what a bad guy Epstein was, and that this was before he had been arrested and imprisoned, at least as far as I can recall. At least it was much before any of the publicity surrounding that. Of course, it was before he was, you know, died, I guess would be the way you'd word it, in prison. Uh, killed is perhaps something we can't necessarily prove. Suicide seems highly unlikely, despite that being the soup of the day theory. But this woman was harassed by this same kind of campaign that David French described a couple of months earlier in the National Review. Harassed to such an extent that I believe, having never interviewed her, that she had to consider the possibility that if she took her case all the way to trial, if the gavel hit the desk to open up that civil suit, she might not survive to see it through. And having to make a choice about being attacked again, whether you believe that the online threats were real or simply bravado, having to make a choice of taking that risk or not, she backed off. These are just three cases, somewhat you know, randomly scattered about. Two people who are non-public figures, uh, innocent citizens, one being the victim of a crime decades earlier, the other maybe a decade or so earlier, and coming forward only because they kind of could not deal with the fact that the person who they say had attacked them was about to be in a position of tremendous political power. And then another one, who, by all accounts reading articles, was a detractor of both, completely ignoring one, as far as I can tell, and being firmly on the Kavanaugh side of all Kavanaugh-Ford debates throughout the process of that confirmation. Now, I'm not saying that because French found himself abused by conservative people that he should have walked away from the conservative movement. That's probably not something that I would expect of myself, let alone him. But the silence is really interesting, because... In some ways, the number one thing encouraging the people who are doing these sorts of things is the relative lack of consequences, how well they are shielded from, cons from consequences by the people who run Facebook and Twitter and other social media programs. The fact that our government doesn't seem to take this kind of online harassment any more seriously than some schools in religiously conservative school districts take bullying being very careful not to go too far down the line of addressing issues of bullying because some of the people doing the bullying were Christian kids and you've got to protect the Christian kids' rights to proselytize, even if they're proselytizing using the language of Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church to accomplish their allegedly spiritual goals. So here we are, stuck with a culture where we're not willing to address head-on the problem that we're facing. Where we're, maybe if we got um, you know, technical about it and legalistic about it, we are so obsessed with the perception of the free speech rights of certain people that we're allowing them to use those rights as quite literally a weapon. I don't think that there, there's any reading of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution that says the death threats, harassment, and rape threats are protected speech. And it seems that some people, maybe even some within the conservative movement in particular, are just, a conf just as confused about what the appropriate limits might be to hate-filled and violent speech as they are to what might be simple and common sense, limits is even too strong a word, simple and common sense steps to take around the Second Amendment. If you have this almost 
obsessive belief that the Second Amendment regarding gun rights means that there can be no laws whatsoever respecting the ownership and threats to use guns, then maybe you are comfortable saying that there's really no perceived limits to what someone might do with free speech to threaten violence, to make phone calls at three or four in the morning, to you know hack in to the phone calls happening between you know family members, and to pick on people as young as six or seven years old with this kind of harassment. So I don't know what the solution necessarily is. And we do have to be careful with a zero-tolerance policy toward any forms of speech that could be construed as highly critical and negative, that we don't want to live in a society where we presume to respect the First Amendment, but we stamp out any accusing tone of voice. I'd be a hypocrite to say that because this episode is offering an accusing tone of voice. And note the difference with how patient I am, uh, my understanding of what I perceive my junior high school classmate, if I'm even right that it was her, her underlying motivations and reactions. I can respect the notion that she felt insulted or felt snubbed in some way and felt powerless, and making angry phone calls was the only way she could express herself. That's a very, very different thing than what we're dealing with right now. It's not even a question of differences of degree, in my opinion. And we see it not just inside the realm of politics. We also see it inside the realm of the church. I've spoken about this before as well, but it feels like a good time to explain a little bit more about the bookends I've put, what the beginning point is that I've selected for the available podcasts for both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations on streaming media. Because I'd like to use this episode, and this topic in particular, to name Sarah Bessie as a different drummer. When I chose to extend these podcasts to Spotify, I needed to pick what I considered to be the appropriate beginning point. And what I chose was a line somewhere between the end of June and 2017, the beginning of July of that year. And the first two episodes, um, the beginning episodes, if you will, for the current streaming experience, are Walk the Earth 44 and Walk the Earth 45. In Walk the Earth 45, I take a look at what turned out to be Dan Carlin saying goodbye to one of my favorite podcasts. It wasn't necessarily an overt episode where he was saying common sense is coming to an end, this is the last show. But in retrospect, it does appear that what he was saying in that particular episode of the Common Sense Podcast, which I responded to on Walk the Earth, was a turning point and a crossroads for him. The episode before it, Walk the Earth 44, answered this question. Whether people menacing female Christian authors with rape and death threats are Christians if they identified themselves. Generally speaking, Walk the Earth 44 is available on the feed, it is usually, if I do my job well, the very first show, if you scroll all the way back to what the beginning of that feed will have on it. If Walk the Earth 45 is the beginning instead, that's a temporary thing that I will probably correct. When each show posts, I need to go back and extend so that we Walk the Earth 44 is the starting point. And now that I'm scheduling posts more than I ever have before, 
sometimes I'm not in as much you know minute by minute control of when a new show is added, moving my starting point from Walk the Earth 44 to Walk the Earth 45. But even though that question is still available, generally speaking, on all of the feeds, including Spotify and iTunes, I'll go ahead and provide a little bit of a teaser and give you my answer, because I think the answer is important. Yes. The people who are menacing Sarah Bessie for asking a simple question about the way people talk to women in the church were self-described Christians. Your average atheist had no idea who Sarah Bessie was, and certainly isn't going to engage in a Twitter hashtag for Christian women and how Christian women are addressed in the church today. The way Christian women are addressed in Protestant churches today is not something your average atheist cares about. Meaning that the harassment that Bessie was receiving was harassment from people who were speaking to her as presumably, at least in their minds, Christian men trying to provide corrective by shutting that woman up. Again, torment as tactic. Well, who was this woman they perceived they were shutting up? Sarah Bessie, according to her own website, is the author of the best-selling and critically acclaimed books Jesus Feminist and Out of Sorts, Making Peace with an Evolving Faith. Her latest book, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things, has been released. In fact, on her Facebook page, it was an October post that talked about it being four years since her last book and her new book was available. I am behind on these books. I'm behind for a few reasons. Um, I've had to put other authors first, I guess would be the way I word it. But my engagement with Sarah Bessie is not solely, she publishes a book, I try to read it. My engagement is being part of an email, an e-newsletter, if you will, that she created a couple of years ago called Field Notes. And it's in that context that even though I don't feel like I have any answers to the question of how do we stop trolls from tormenting people, I can perhaps point in a positive example and say, there is another way, there is a better way. And to some degree, this better way makes me uncomfortable. And I'll raise my hand and say, I am not participating in the manner that Bessie is going to describe for us here in a moment. At least not yet. Because I've always been the kind of person, I guess I believe in the Woody Allen quote, that I'm not sure I'd want to be a member of any club whose standards were so low that I could qualify for membership. That the exclusivity of a sequestered group makes me uncomfortable for reasons that border on the same discomfort I feel about segregation, generally speaking. Being anti-segregation makes me also somewhat anti-exclusive clubs or exclusive groups. Back to the bio, though. Sarah is a sought-after speaker at churches, conferences, and universities around the world. She's also a popular and frequent podcast guest, appearing on Lead Stories, The Bible for Normal People, Relevant, Sort of Awesome, The Road Back to You, and many others. Sarah also is the author of Field Notes, a weekly e-newsletter and community with a book club, exclusive essays, conversation threads, and many other features. You can sign up for Field Notes here. I am literally going to click on the sign up here because on her website, it's a matter of providing your email and then getting the emails. But Bessie has recently made a shift. Let me see if I can timestamp this before I share it. It was one of her emails in her Field Notes series, going back to July of 2019, where she made an announcement in that e-letter. Have you noticed uh, things look a bit different this month? I've moved to a new platform for Field Notes. 
The old platform just wasn't working well for us for a number of reasons, but the main reason won't be a surprise to many longtime subscribers. A number of months ago, we had a subscriber survey to figure out how to make field notes more sustainable moving forward. As much as I love doing this e-newsletter, the truth is that it has grown so much that it has become unsustainable for me. I took some time to sit with your answers and enthusiastic bossy friend suggestions to do research, discern, and now I think I've landed somewhere that feels good to me and hopefully accessible to most of us. We're moving to a subscriber-based model for field notes. From now on, I'll send out a minimalist version of the field notes just four times a year. If you're happy with that arrangement and won't miss features like Book Corner and The Good Things, don't do anything at all. You're already signed up and we're totally fine. So far, Greg, totally fine. The months when that minimalist version will come to your January, April, July, and October. But in order to keep receiving the full deal, the 12 issues of Field Notes a year, you'll need to subscribe $5 a month Canadian, just under $4 US with the conversion, and it's about essentially establishing sort of an online community. Uh, what used to be a forum back when I first started interacting more actively online, but even maybe a touch more exclusive than that, and certainly based on a subscription model. I've got another email from this period of time where somebody named Rebecca had asked a question. How do I maintain relationships with my parents when they're getting adamantly anti-LGBTQ? I came out two years ago and I'm getting married in May, and my parents are still praying about attending. You know, when I first read that, I thought, well, I've actually put some words to my thoughts on that exact question years and years ago. In August of 2015, before a studio audience in Las Vegas, I recorded Walk the Earth 30, which was answering a similar question to this one. It was probably released as a podcast in September of 2015. And it's one of the ones that'll be an upcoming talkback episode when Walk the Earth gets going. And when I start sharing Walk the Earth episodes as talkbacks, I may begin with the first couple episodes, but I'm not going to go numerically through. I'll hit them topically as well, and Walk the Earth will be part of that process. It won't be long this year before Walk the Earth 30 is shared again, in other words. The sad thing is, I was not able to contribute in any way to this particular conversation, having made the decision, at least for now, to not be a subscriber to a more exclusive version of this particular online community. But the main reason I wanted to name Bessie as a different drummer today is not because she's a victim. I could have named David French if I wanted to, although I'm not sure he meets a lot of the other qualities that I'd be looking for. Well, Bessie certainly lines up with my theology, lines up with the way I try to treat others, stands as a pretty good example of somebody who is outspoken, but outspoken in in an appropriate sort of a way, exploring, trying to find bridges, understanding the concept that when you build bridges, you're often misunderstood by both sides. She's got those qualities as a different drummer. And it's sometimes tricky when you're naming a different drummer who's essentially an author, because as I've noted before, it's sometimes more difficult to find good biographical material about authors than it is about almost anybody else. People who write for a living often don't have a lot written about them in maybe the same way that you can find reasonably good biographical material about actors and film directors and um, political thinkers, as far as that goes. Now, one of the things I liked about it, this particular email, the one I couldn't respond to, has a reminder about our guidelines, and I'm assuming these are guidelines for the, the Field Notes community. 
I'll read them through in a way that's going to harken back to one of the first 10 or 11 episodes of Inappropriate Conversations, where I made similar positive shout-outs to how the right kind of standards in an online community or an online forum can do more to create the right kinds of conversations than any rigid rules could accomplish, and certainly way better than the sort of uh, social Darwinism at play right now that says that it's more important to allow anybody to do anything they want to in the realm of speech because speech somehow can never be abridged. Their guidelines. Number one, assign positive intent to one another. We have a compassion on the ones who are not in the same place as us, recognizing and honoring each other's unique starting places and journeys. We value this as a hospitable space, compassionately calling towards, never calling out, or canceling. Clearly, Bessie had my attention with the very first point. A few more points. Vulnerability takes courage. Honor this. Speak from your experiences. Be respectful, kind, and compassionate to one another. Discussion and different perspectives and disagreement are more than welcome. Bullying, shaming, piling on, or name-calling is not. Respond as if you are face-to-face. We will not allow disrespectful comments and posts about race, religion, denomination, culture, sexual orientation, gender, nationality, political affiliation, or identity. Be trustworthy. Some sensitive personal things are shared here. What is discussed in this group must remain in this group. And so on. Bessie doing her best to establish the kind of community that could in fact be represented as an antidote, at least in its principles, for the kind of behavior that I've been discussing in the balance of this podcast. That everything ranging from what we call the cancel culture today, to the outright attacking anybody for their differences because they're different. Not allowed in the community that she's trying to establish. Not allowed on its very best days in the best online communities I've ever participated in. But we don't have a great way of policing this in the greater outside world. I wish I had more answers, but the best I can offer in this different drummer segment is an example. As I did years before on Walk the Earth 44, I want to give Sarah Bessie the last word. Even on this topic, I'm not exactly sure how the bridge will be gapped, but if we're ever going to bridge the gap and address the issues with the way we communicate with each other in this society, it's going to take more than peacekeeping to do it. It's going to take more than a pretense of getting along. It's going to have to take some active, very taxing bridge building to make it happen. Here's what Bessie said April 21st, a couple of years ago. In fact, the same year that I talked about her on Walk the Earth. Over the years, God has messed with me on the difference between being a peacekeeper and being a peacemaker. I want to be a peacemaker. I want to embody shalom of God's kingdom. Peacekeeping is not peacemaking. And sometimes shalom is disruptive. Sometimes peacemaking makes people uncomfortable. Sometimes these conversations we'd rather not have, or truth we would rather not acknowledge. Speaking truth to power is rarely comfortable for anyone. But conflict and discomfort can be a tool for strengthening and sharpening. 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And that's how I see these conversations, as the faithful wounds of a friend. I have friends in my life who are faithful to speak truth to me, who call me on my crap. That's a faithful friend, the one who loves you, is committed to you, is loyal, and also speaks truth. I love the church with my whole heart, my friends. But here's the thing. We can't fix what we refuse to see. We can't heal what we refuse to admit is sick. We can't clean what we pretend isn't dirty. We can't be a candle on a lampstand, let alone a city on a hill, while harboring dark corners. I think we can admit that this conversation has exposed a few unhealthy corners begging to be swept out. We can hold bold truths. The church is beautiful and redemptive and holy, and the church has some work to do. Dan Carlin. It's hardcore history. Give you an example of what I mean. Ever fought an elephant in hand-to-hand combat? You, your relatives, your neighbors, some acquaintances get together on your street. I'll give you some swords and some spears and some javelins, and I'm going to put an elephant on the other side of the street with one guy on top of him, and I'm going to tell you to go get each other. Put that mental image in your mind for a second. The events. The war between Nazi Germany and the Communist Soviet Union. If you took that out of the greater scheme of World War II and just looked at it by itself, it would be the largest war in human history. The drama. And what I said to my friend who asked me, what I thought an Apache raid, the aftermath of an Apache raid was like. I said, imagine you were one of the police officers that was the first to show up at one of the Manson murder scenes. The deep questions. What's that person thinking about? What's on that person's mind? What do you think about one minute into a crucifixion? Get more hardcore history at dancarlin.com. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. Both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth can be found on the RSS feed from inappropriateconversations.org. I post from time to time on Twitter and Facebook where there's a page for Walk the Earth and a page for Inappropriate Conversations. At SoundCloud, like at Twitter, I'm IC underscore Greg. There are some hints and some promotions of past shows available there. Thanks for listening. is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.